Hello, Desenio podcast listeners. Today, we're excited to share something we've been working on for the past year. The first episode of Words on Wood, a new podcast from AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council, made in collaboration with Desenio. Words on Wood offers a deep dive into some of the big issues surrounding forests and how these affect design and architecture at large. Offering expert analysis and science, alongside industry perspectives and concrete design proposals, Words on Wood provides an accessible route into understanding the global forces shaping our environment. If you like what you hear, you can listen to the whole series by subscribing to Words on Wood, available on all major podcast platforms. But that's enough with me. Now, on with the show. What do you think of when someone mentions a forest? Amazonian tropics, or Nordic pines, or maybe you're imagining Californian redwoods, with trees 100 metres tall and 9 metres wide. And while we're at it, are these ancient woodlands, full of hooting owls and meandering paths, or working forests where trees are felled and lumber harvested on an industrial scale? Because when we talk about the forest, we're not really talking about a single homogenous place. These are living, changing environments, and no two are alike. Which is really the theme of this podcast, Words on Wood. My name is Christina Rapatsky. And I'm Ollie Stratford. And we're the editors of Desenio, a quarterly journal about design. Over the past six months, we've been working with AHEC, the American Hardwood Export Council, on this new series exploring forestry and how the way we care for and harvest our forests have far-reaching consequences across design and architecture. So we've been speaking with experts from across forestry, academia and conservationism, as well as architects and designers who are working with timber, trying to find out more about some of the issues facing the field. We're going to cover all sorts of topics in the coming episodes, from forest management, carbon sequestration, how to build with massive timber... Timber certification, illegal logging... And climate change. Yeah, climate change is a big one. We might take a few runs at climate change. So if you ever wanted to know more about how forests work and the mess of industrial, environmental, regulatory and ethical issues that swirl around them, then you've come to the right place. All of that is yet to come, however. Before we get to that bigger picture, we need to start small at a four-acre ancient woodland in the North Downs, southern England. I think it's just mega exciting in the moment I realised that I was like oh my god I'm so lucky I've ended up with a career which can you know be part of the solution to our planetary problems anyone who works with wood you're already onto a good thing that's Sebastian Cox he's a furniture designer and maker based in southeast London and he works primarily with wood and he also has his own patch of woodland in Kent that provides some of the source material for his furniture production here he is describing it it's a mixed coppice woodland so uh, there are mixed species in there. There are some large oaks, which are hundreds of years old. They're not quite ancient, but they're sort of like healthy, mature oaks. And then we have hornbeam, birch, hazel, sweet chestnut, wild cherry. And so it's a nice mix. And each of the, each of the sort of stands within the wood, even though it's only four acres, we have different compartments that are kind of quite nice and neat. It has been certainly coppiced for you know the trees in there I reckon are three four hundred year old stools so we don't know exactly what the composition of the wood was like before kind of the 17th 
century, but certainly I think it's from there, so it's definitely ancient woodland. And it has, we know for a fact, some red list species in there, like dormice. We know that there are dormice in the wood. So it's a patch of mixed woodland, which you can probably tell is very good for creating a rich and biodiverse environment for all sorts of critters, like dormice. Anyway, he mentions coppicing there. Right, and coppicing is an ancient technique of woodland management, isn't it? Exactly. People have been doing this for thousands of years. It's where you take advantage of the fact that young trees, when they're cut, will simply regenerate from the stump or stool, as it's called. That's why some of the trees in Seb's woods are so old. They've been coppiced for centuries and kept in a relatively juvenile state. A regularly coppiced tree is practically immortal, actually. It just kind of keeps going forever. Which is kind of a lovely thing. So this idea of a tree persisting through generations, souped up on a sorcerer's stone of coppicing. (laughs) It must mean that you have to harvest quite regularly, though, I suppose. Yeah, well, that depends on the type of woodland and all sorts of factors, actually. But I'll let Sebastian explain. Well, I suppose the main way that it's unique is that it's a short rotation harvest which is, I suppose, also the only defining factor that makes it different from other forestry methods, because if you're talking hardwoods, uh, trees can regenerate by themselves anyway. But one of the things that people often don't know is that when you cut trees on a coppice rotation, they regrow without replanting. So what we're talking about here is short rotation, somewhere between seven years and max 20, 30 years, depending on the type of wood. It sounds like quite an intensive way to harvest wood. It is, but it's also very good for a varied woodland like Seb's. And that's in part because of mammoths. (laughs) Okay, Uh, mammoths? Yeah, I'll let Seb explain this one. So mammoths, elephants, lived on this island, this part of Europe, for millennia. Uh, You know, the mammoths have only been extinct 10,000 years. So our trees are still very adapted to being pushed over, to being snapped And I think this is the thing that I'm always trying to impress upon people is that people's view of the natural world is about like conserving and keeping things in a particular snapshot of time. People love the image of bluebell woodland as the sort of epitome of an English woodland. But the reality is that a proper English woodland should be absolutely smashed, trampled, snapped, broken, dug up by wild boar. You know, they are not landscapes in stasis. I like all this discussion about mammoths and elephants and wild boar, but I think I detected a different animal in there as well at one point. Uh, Was that a dog in the background? Yes, yes, that's Seb's dog. Um, Yeah, it's a wonderful thing. I'm really sorry, my dog's just coming (laughs) and you can probably hear her. In case listeners haven't already picked up on this, Seb is a pretty wholesome guy. (laughs) He's also sort of a microcosm, isn't he? A microcosm? Um, How do you mean? Well, insofar as he's sort of a forestry complete package from managing his woodland through to harvesting the wood and then going on to designing and making objects and furniture from that. That's true. He's actually working with a lot of the same issues and processes that you see elsewhere in the world where people are managing forests, but he's doing it at a scale where it's quite manageable. He doesn't really have to worry about multiple stakeholders. He doesn't have to reconcile too many competing issues or coordinating a huge number of processes and people. I think it starts getting a lot more complicated when you begin to scale up, though. (laughs) It certainly does. And that's something I may be able to shed some light on. So while you were speaking to Seb, I started looking for someone who could provide that broader perspective and speak to what happens when you start to look at the large scale timber industry. That's great. 
I have a feeling we won't be staying in the North Downs, though, will we? <laughs> no, we won't be. So from old England, we're moving to New England in the United States, where we're going to be speaking to Jameson French, CEO and president of Northland Forest Products. So Jameson, or actually he goes by Jamie, is a hardwood lumber processor, exporter and distributor who provides forest products all around the world. Can I jump in there? Because you mentioned hardwood and I'm not actually sure I know the difference between hardwood and softwood lumber, which are the two main types, right? Right. Those are the two types, but they're not exactly what they sound like either. So as a good general rule of thumb, hardwoods do tend to be denser. But on the other hand, you have something like balsa wood, which is also a hardwood. I see. But is there is there like a exact definition then if there are exceptions to that rule? So ultimately, it comes down to the type of tree and the species. So hardwood lumber comes from deciduous trees, whereas softwood comes from coniferous trees. Okay. So on the one hand, you have ash, birch, cherry and oak. Those are all hardwoods. Pine, fir and larch, for instance, are softwoods. I see. I see. So we should go back to Jamie, who, for the record, specifically works with hardwoods. Right. He's actually been in the forestry industry for 44 years, while his family has been in it for generations. So Jamie is fourth generation, but the family as a whole, their involvement goes back to the 1880s. He's currently policy chair of the Hardwood Federation, which is the hardwood industry's political representation in Washington, D.C. And he's chaired pretty much every other related council you can think of. Well, he sounds like just the sort of person we should be speaking to. Right. So the first thing I wanted to get his opinion on was a slightly difficult issue, which is the environment. I think everybody worries that when you get into the lumber industry, you're talking about extracting natural resources in the style of gas or oil. Yeah, I suppose the general feeling is we want to plant trees, not cut them down. <laughs> right. And Jamie, growing up in the 70s, was also kind of of that school of thought. So I'd grown up with this deep passion about wildlife, birding, hiking, camping, all those things. So Jamie actually got involved with the environmental movement, which was beginning to come into its own then, and he became co-chair of his town's Earth Day celebration. So I was a rabble-rouser, and it was an interesting conflict because our families were benefiting directly of being an extractor industry lumped together. And at the time, the Western forest industry was absolutely, you know, the sin of almost as bad as oil and gas and polluters of rivers because they were clear-cutting the virgin western forests. And clear-cutting is this practice of cutting down just all the trees in a given area, right? Correct. At least in Europe and the US, you don't see it as much as you used to, but it's what a lot of people still think all logging is like. So there was a lot of internal tension of what's right for the environment and what's our family's living was going to be made by. And that paradox has probably defined my whole life and my career. And how did he resolve this? Well, one way is you can log more selectively, so smaller sections at a time and rotate that area. Jamie explains that actually the edge you get left between that cut section and the remaining forest is a really interesting site in terms of biodiversity. The edge and the impact that has on wildlife, there's actually some really interesting ecological things that happen when you are harvesting timber and letting light into the forest floor, letting the other species grow. 
the diversity of the wildlife that benefits from the edges, all of these kinds of things. As you might have noticed, Jamie's audio is a little bit tinny here. It's actually our backup audio. Oh, Zoom issues. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a podcaster's worst nightmare. But anyway, this is actually kind of reminding me of Seb Cox. We're talking about logging and not mammoths trampling through the forest, but the basic idea seems kind of similar. Like an ever-changing environment is good for regrowth and for biodiversity. Right. And I think what Jamie argues for is this idea that good management can keep the forest as a working environment that allows for the extraction of lumber, but which still acknowledges that the forest is a living space for lots of very different types of life, from mushrooms, shrubs, dormice in Seb's case. I think the thing that really worries Jamie is that when you get into the situation of monocultures, so forests planted with just one species. My hunch is that that isn't great for biodiversity, trying to turn forests into something more like a factory, you know, production sites for a single resource, because that's basically what a monoculture is, right? Right. I mean, it's hard to imagine a mammoth tramping through all of them. Remember that there's multiple species and, and the healthiest of our forests are multi-age class, multi-species forests. So lots of trees of different generations coming along, regenerating naturally with a diverse species mix. So the gist of what he's saying here is that healthy forest is a multi-species forest. I wonder, Ollie, how how does that square with the demands of the industry? Because it's great to have this variety of species, but different types of wood are subject to different levels of demand, I imagine. So how do you try to maintain forests as working natural environments in the way we've discussed when the market demands would perhaps rather that it worked a bit like a factory? Absolutely. And I think it's a really tough nut to crack One of the real enemies here seems to be fashion, which sounds like an odd thing to say in relation to timber. I don't think you think about trend and style necessarily in that world. But Jamie's adamant that it's one of the main drivers. You know, in my so in my lifetime, 70s, early 80s, it was obsessed with red oak. It was red oak, red oak, red oak, red oak, red oak, everything. So if you can't hear, he's saying red oak. Hundreds of thousands of ugly, thick, big chairs were made in Belgium and Holland and Germany that you guys see in thrift shops or whatever, heavy furniture. Then we had the, you know, the cherry boom in the 90s, think Heathrow's Terminal 4. You know, everything was cherry down to the loose seats. <laughs> oh my God. I think I'm just old enough to remember the 90s cherry boom. So is there a risk that fashions like the cherry boom result in the overlogging of, say, cherry wood? Yeah, there is. I mean, in an ideal world, you'd be using the trees that you have a lot of and allowing those that you have fewer of to recover. So not felling those. Yeah, that would be good resource management. Yeah, I think it's a good design principle. So respond to the supply at hand, even if that means using timber that may not be aesthetically perfect whatever that might mean, but which is none the worst for it. So even if that means not making cherry loose seats to go to your lovely cherry airport. In fact, Jamie's quite passionate about embracing that mindset. You know, recognition that some defects can be really attractive, you know, utilize, better utilization of, of, of everything that comes from the tree. Those are all very important things. And I think that's part of the environmental commitment that the designers, the specifiers, and then the consumers 
that need to be educated on what, you know, good utilization of what we have in the world's forests is an important part of the consumer decision-making as their role in, in climate and environmental protection. Trying to encourage people to take that view must be a bit of an uphill battle, though. We're not used to not being able to have whatever we want whenever we want it, right? So how do you even begin to change those attitudes? Weirdly, fish and fishing might give us a clue. I feel, I feel like we're going through the entire animal kingdom here. <laughs> We've got it all covered. It's a full Noah's Ark. But, you know, fishing is an industry that's going through similar things. We know certain species are overfished. So we hear people speak about cod and tuna. So how do you try to get people to stop buying those fish, which we have less of, and try some more abundant species instead? When I was a kid, I mean, I grew up on the ocean, but Pollock was cat food, you know, and I we didn't even put it in chowder. I mean, haddock and cod and everything. But so to convince me that po- Pollock is a delicious gourmet food is a very challenging thing. Stick with it. There is a good metaphor in here. Soft maple, you know, is, you know, would be regarded as the Pollock. And, uh, you know, it was a terrible name. It's only 20% softer than hard milk. It had, you know, coloration issues, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, it is a good fish. It's a good utility fish. It's a good utility wood and has multiple purposes. So what I think he's saying is that we need to start using some of these good utility fish in design and architecture. That's exactly what he's saying. Start using some more soft maple. <laughs> That's great. I also, I was interested to hear him on the um, imperfections and embracing those, because that's something that Seb was quite adamant about as well, although he didn't use Pollock as, a, as an analogy. I just think we've got to get a lot more comfortable with imperfections and discoloration in wood. I just think it's, it's a kind of like a, a nonsense that we're so fussy about it because it causes such problems. I think it really is as simple as visual preference. But visual preference does come from education. I think a lot of people don't even ask where the stuff comes from and and what the implications of it arriving are or have been. Which isn't the rosiest assessment of the situation, but it strikes me that sensibilities are slightly beginning to change. Definitely. And Seb thinks so too. I think people are beginning to ask those questions about everything, you know, that they're consuming. Which is great, because that's ultimately what we want this podcast series to do. And in the coming episodes, we are going to look at some of the specifics of how we can work with different types of wood, how we can utilise as much of the tree as possible, and all manner of other issues revolving around forestry. For now, though, I want to let Seb have the final word if I may, because he has a bit of a call to action, which I think can serve as a really good springboard for the rest of our series. Words on wood. In terms of what designers can do, take a long, hard look at the materials you're using. If you're not doing that as a designer, you're not doing a very good job of being a designer. I'm really sorry. (laughs) Like, how have you become so detached? That's like a farmer who doesn't know the difference between cattle and wheat. The, the, the big challenge should be in educating consumers because perhaps they are a little bit more removed from everything anyway, but designers should be connected to everything that they're designing and making. This has been Words on Wood, a podcast about forestry and how it relates to design and architecture. This episode was produced and edited by Evie Hall, and the series has been supported by and made in collaboration with AHEC. 
Our next episode will cover carbon sequestration, where we'll be joined by architect Andrew Waugh from Waugh Thistleton, Galina Chakina, senior scientist at the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and Sean Sutcliffe, co-founder of the Benchmark Furniture Company.